I looked at them a couple times. Excellent. So anything that's inaccurate, um, Doc Rosenbaum yeah. is actually responsible for. That's right. <laughs> so, so she was going to talk about alcohol use disorder. Um, so we'll just go through her slides. Sure. So this first slide is uh, just for, you know how significant this uh, problem, alcohol use disorder, is worldwide, and it's sort of not a big surprise that Russia is uh, not doing so well with the alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> and Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's uh, it looks like America's kind of middle of the road, um, and it's common. I mean, it's if you look at the top, the prevalence of. Uh, Alcohol use disorder is what we would just be thought of as alcoholism uh, in lay terms. So about 5% for young people and 8.5% for older folks. And then it varies. Native Americans, uh, unfortunately, have very high rates. Yeah, so uh, alcohol use disorder rates uh, twice um, the rate in uh, men as it is in women. Um, so it's not that more women more men drink necessarily than women but more men develop alcohol use disorder um, at about twice the rate yeah. um, and this world map here is is not on kind of rates of alcohol use disorder but just kind of the amount of alcohol that's consumed and so you see like you know again it's just kind of interesting like the middle east and northern africa which is um kind of predominantly um islamic or muslim uh, which has a uh, taboo against alcohol. It's actually like a, it's not just taboo. It's, it's the law of Islam not to um, become intoxicated. And so it's very low there. Same thing with Indonesia, where actually nine out of 10 Muslims live. Um, but then very high in uh, across Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. And then um, high also in Australia and North and South America, both. And what you see down at the bottom of this graphic um, are some of the problems that result from alcohol and, and specifically why people die. So remember, alcohol still kills more people worldwide than all drugs, all the illegal drugs put together. It's our biggest killer. Um, and in New Mexico, we have the highest alcohol-related mortality in the country. Um, that's both for vehicles and outside of vehicular mortality. And so just to notice, so a third of those deaths are due to stroke and heart attack, what's called here cardiovascular diseases and diabetes. Um, and then unintentional injuries, that's like our car accidents, that's falling off of the roof, that's accidentally discharging a firearm. Um, gastrointestinal diseases, that's like liver uh, disease and liver cancer, but then also bleeding out through the, through the uh, intestines. And notice that 12.5% of these are cancers. Um, this is something that, that surprised me. That alcohol really is a carcinogen. It causes um, cancer of the esophagus, esophagus, um, a cancer of the stomach, and then if you get hepatitis um, or just kind of a lot of liver damage from it and you get cirrhosis, um, it, liver cancer, uh, which has pretty high death rates. Um, so lots of those. But then other things too, infectious diseases, because like if you drink a lot, you might be kind of passed out and you might be more likely to get a pneumonia as an example. So a lot of different ways that alcohol kills people um, and a lot of different ways that it causes problems even without killing people. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yes. 
Um, so again, so somewhere between four and, and almost 5% of, of deaths worldwide attributed to alcohol. There are also probably a lot more deaths that are not attributed, but that are actually due to it. Um, uh, third uh, leading cause of, they say lifestyle related uh, death, which are just what we call kind of factors that we can change, right? Where choices are, are play a role. Um, things like tobacco use and obesity being um, ahead of it. <clears throat> um, huge economic costs. And, you know, so I hear about this all the time. So, yeah, if you're drunk at work, that's an economic cost, but that's not most of it. Um, so if you're real hungover and you don't go into work, um, that's a huge cost, right, uh, to industry. But then there's this other idea that of, so that's absenteeism. That's when you don't go to work. Actually harder to account for and probably even more expensive is what we call presenteeism. And that's when you've, you know, kind of, if, you, if you've been drinking the night before and you do go to work, but you're less productive because you're, you're not really firing on all cylinders. Your brain is tired, your body's tired. Um, and so we get lost productivity there. And then of course, healthcare costs are huge. Lots and lots of ER visits, um, lots of hospitalizations. I can't tell you how much this is what we're seeing um, in our hospitals and our ERs, uh, certainly where I work. And we're trying to figure out how to reduce that. Um, but it's tough, right? And this is, I know, something that comes up where um, law enforcement might encounter somebody who's intoxicated and they might be stumbling out into traffic. They might be, you know, there's a concern for their, for their, for public safety risk. Uh, but of course, for anybody who's not in New Mexico, um, uh, you might be surprised being intoxicated is protected by our state constitution. America. Uh, it is not illegal, uh, to be intoxicated here. Public intoxication is not illegal. Driving a vehicle intoxicated is. Uh, but actually our state constitution, it's worded something like no law shall ever prohibit drunkenness is how it's worded. Um, and so, so well-intentioned, um, uh, EMTs and, uh, police officers will bring folks to the emergency room. Um, and it's, it's a tough one because they don't end up getting much, there's not much to do there and it's very expensive. Um, we are all overly familiar with the driving fatalities. And again, we have the highest in New Mexico, highest vehicular uh, alcohol uh, vehicular mortality in the country. Um, and then there's this really big important bullet here, which is that um, they at least say that kind of 30% of, of completed suicides are alcohol related and 50% of homicides are alcohol related. And in terms of suicide attempts, um, I've seen numbers much higher than 30%. I've seen like 70%. Um, intoxication in general is a really big risk for suicide, but especially with alcohol. And, and that's because things make sense when, you're, when you've got alcohol on board that might not have made sense before. And also alcohol has this amazing ability to sometimes make people happy or sometimes really magnify their unhappiness. Um, and then it, it's just can be so easy to pick up a firearm um, and, and discharge it. Um, and it might have been kind of intentional up until the end, but then we also make mistakes when we're intoxicated. And so huge risk factor for suicide. Um, also in general, so this talks about 17% of men or 8% of women. What we say in, in general is that about 10% of, of adults will at one point during their life meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. Um, 
and uh, probably it looks like about maybe 1% of them will ever seek treatment. So, so most people that need treatment don't even seek it, um, which is, is a little bit different than do we actually have treatment available for those who seek it. Um, uh, this, and then the last bullet here is, is interesting. I was just reading about this earlier today, actually, that this is not true for all drugs, but, but in long-term studies of alcohol use, we actually do see very high recovery rates with alcohol. Um, certainly many of us know somebody who, who's not part of that statistic and they just kind of couldn't get away from it. But a lot of people will like have problem drinking. It lasts for, lasts for five years or 10 years. Um, but kind of 10 year use, we, we see very high rates, up to 50% of people kind of chilling out. That in contrast to opioids, where with opioids, we see really low um, um, recovery rates uh, spontaneously for people who have used opioids for 10 years. Um, so there is kind of this phenomenon where people can just kind of get tired of all the problems that drinking has caused. And some people don't even need treatment and they can stop. Some people need treatment. They need to like go to AA meetings or 12 steps or get together with their church and other faith-based resources. And then some people need to really engage with like a therapist or a, a, a physician or a prescriber like myself. Okay. Um, so a little bit um, about kind of risks. Um, so, so there are some interesting risks when it comes to alcohol for all drugs um, and, and including alcohol. Um, so it looks like it's about 40 to 50% genetic, a genetic risk for alcohol use disorder meaning that about, about half of the risk comes from our genes. And this usually means that somebody in the family has had problems with alcohol, um, as long as they grew up in a place where there was alcohol, right? If you had lots of genes that put you at risk for alcohol and you grew up in Saudi Arabia and you just weren't exposed to alcohol, you might not have developed alcoholism, but then you move to the United States, maybe your kids do develop alcoholism because alcohol is all over the place here. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thing. It's about 50-50, the, the environment versus genetics in terms of alcohol use. Um, and there are a couple things like that. So for example, it tends to be that people who have these genes that put them at risk for developing alcoholism, um, more likely than not have a natural high tolerance for alcohol. Um, so if you're just somebody who, who just, you've always been able to drink other people under the table. Is that the right? Right, it's under the table. Yeah. Um, then you, you might be at risk for developing um, a, uh, an alcohol problem, and so might your kids um, because of that natural inborn. And what that gets to is, is it actually relates to one of the, the environmental risks, which is just if you are, are exposed to large amounts of alcohol intake, um, which is what's called here in social norms. Um, so if your social norm is not drinking, that's protective. But if your social norm is drinking a lot, that is a risk. Um, where I see this a lot, for example, is in the military. Um, where when I was, I was teaching a, the army, an, an army group once about like standard drinks and how many drinks, you know, uh, a screen of how many drinks you have at once and if that puts you at risk for, for alcoholism. And so what we know, for example, is you can ask one question. For men, if you've had more, five, more than five drinks at one time, 
or for women if you've had more than four drinks at one time, you're just statistically at higher risk for developing a drinking problem. And this whole classroom full of army soldiers just laughed and laughed and laughed because they were like, that's, you know, six drinks is, is getting started, <laughs> right? And so that's a social norm um, that, that really can have a big impact here. Um, we already mentioned sex, which now we all know we can differentiate from gender. It's written as gender here, but so <coughs> males, about twice the rate. Um, we also know that the younger you start drinking, in general, um, in general, there's some conflict, but that, that the more likely you are to develop a drinking problem. Um, and so, for example, what we do these days with teens is we try to encourage teens to wait until they're 19 to start um, uh, experimenting with alcohol and drugs and that's just because statistically if you start before 19 you're more likely to develop an addiction I and less likely if you're after 19. Matt with APD I, I don't think any law enforcement should encourage someone 19 to drink so throw that out there we frowned upon <laughs> so, in our line of work. So, to be very specific we don't encourage them to use at all we encourage them to wait if they're going to use but thank you for that clarification. Um, also, we know that a couple more risk factors, low socioeconomic status is a, is a risk factor. So uh, poverty is a risk factor. Unemployment is a risk factor. We know that being separated, divorced, um, or single is a risk factor. And again, these risk factors don't mean that it's a for sure thing, right? It just means that your risk is higher. Um, and then we also know that if you are in a, uh, an ethnic minority, and especially if you are a disenfranchised, it's, it's actually not just ethnic minority. It's specifically that you're a migrant. So, so you're new to a culture. And this is true in the United States and other countries too. If you come from an outside culture, um, and so you have problems kind of fitting in with the local social norms, your risk of, of developing an alcohol use disorder is also higher. Uh, so that's not just, just being a, kind of an ethnic minority. It's specifically that you're coming from another culture into that kind of parent culture. Um, and then also, sorry to leave it off, but any psychiatric illness at all is a risk factor. We haven't yet found a diagnosis that is not a risk factor for this. Um, there's a little variation in different ages. And then the biggest risk factors are um, conduct disorder or antisocial personality disorder. They have the highest rates. Um, PTSD increases your rate uh, or risk of, of problem drinking. Uh, ADHD, when it's not treated, uh, increases your risk of any problematic substance use. And then same thing with uh, like mood disorders like depression and mania um, and um, uh, certain anxiety disorders. Uh, it actually looks like OCD may be, may be protective, um, uh, but certain like generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, alcohol can calm down your anxiety and a lot of people find that they can self-medicate with alcohol. So what is a standard drink? And I love this slide, props to her, because it says, what is a standard drink in the US? Anybody who's interested, I encourage you to look on your internet search engine for standard drink in Australia. Because we have four things here, and, and you'll find like 30 different types of beers in the Australian charts. They're very sophisticated about their alcohol. But here's a standard drink, and standard drink just means that these are all equal, we can say, in their alcohol content. 12 ounces of beer, which is 5% alcohol. Now with all these kind of craft beers and these microbreweries, eight ounces of like a malt liquor or kind of one of these, you know, I don't know what you call them, microbrews? Yeah. Craft beers. 
Um, five ounces of wine, you find a little bit of variation. Some charts will say four, uh, four ounces of wine is a standard. Some will say five, some will say six, but somewhere in there. And then one and a half ounces of an 80 proof spirit. That's a shot. So this is how we can count drinks. So if you have three shots and two 12 ounce beers, you have had five standard drinks. You've had five drinks. And that's how we can just count kind of how many drinks you're having. Uh, so it's really helpful. Um, it's also helpful to know the different types of bottles and how many drinks they contain. Um, so I don't really like this slide. <laughs> We're going to skip it. Um, so what is alcohol intoxication? Of course, most of us know that. Um, it's really that you're impaired somehow neurologically is, is how we say medically from alcohol. You might have um, a, your balance might not be so good. You might have slurred speech, right? These are all kind of slowing down of, of your neurological processes. You might have impaired thinking, which means your thinking might be slow, but it also might be that you're disinhibited, right? Which is why you might be more likely to hook up with somebody, more likely to make a bad decision. Um, and it's an interesting thing that happens with alcohol too. So, so the, the short-term response, as many people on the network know, is that usually you feel good and your energy can be heightened, right? It's a, it's a reinforcing thing. It's fun. Um, and then the, the longer-term effect, like so let's say, you know, an hour later, if you, if you kind of don't have more to drink necessarily, you might start to slow down. Um, you might start to get kind of more depressed. Um, you might not feel as good. You're thinking you're, you're not as excited. And so, of course, lots of people will then continue drinking to try and preserve that excitedness, the fun part. Um, you can then drink to the point that you black out. Now, what's a blackout? I define a blackout as is there any part of that time when you were drinking that you can't remember? I think it's too... Too extreme to say that a blackout is that you're unconscious. Um, and the reason why we account for this is that the more like the more often you have you drink to the point of blackout, again, the more likely you are to develop an alcohol problem because that means that you're using heavily. It also means that you're at serious risk. Um, people who blackout and can't really protect themselves are at risk for being assaulted, robbed, um, uh, crashing their car. Um, stacked on. I mean, lots of problems here. And then, of course, too much alcohol can cause your brain essentially to forget to breathe. And this is one of the ways that people die. And this is one of the ways that alcohol, when it's combined with opiates like pain pills, like oxycodone or heroin, or uh, these benzodiazepines like clonopin and Xanax can be very dangerous because people can stop breathing um, and die in their sleep. <clears throat> Um, and this is a, a bit of a blurry slide, but just looking at alcohol poisoning deaths um, by state. And you see that in the West, we tend to be pretty high in terms of um, a death from uh, alcohol drinking. Um, and part of that is that there's kind of, you know, we have kind of a rock and roll Wild West culture, um, but we also have a lot of rural areas. And so you have less access to emergency rooms and stuff like that. Um, you also have... Um, uh, this would be other risks, um, uh, but you have kind of higher access to uh, firearms and things like that too, which are, are generally just dangerous when mixed with alcohol. 
Now here's here's kind of so a kind of a fun thing. Um, how what should your blood alcohol level be at different times, right? So I'm not very good at math, so I just go with the very easy that alcohol increases by 0.02 per drink per hour, or it decreases by 0.02 per hour if you stop drinking. So if you drink four drinks in an hour, you can predict that you will be at 0.08 on the breathalyzer, or that's the same as 80 on the blood alcohol. Um, so they have kind of a little bit geekier math here, but but I just you can do it different for men and women. But 0.02. Here's the thing to that's really important. At point oh at point three or 300, depending on whether you breathalyze or do the blood test, if you don't have any tolerance, you should be unconscious. And this is, I think, important for if we're taking people into if, if we're arresting people and bringing them into custody. Because if somebody blows at a 0.3 or above and they are conscious, that means that they've developed tolerance and that means that the chances that they have a dangerous withdrawal are higher, um, which could happen after we, we put them in a cell, right? And, and we're not paying attention to them. They, they're just kind of acting kind of um, anxious or agitated and, and we don't know what's happening and then they have a seizure, hit their head and have a brain injury uh, or they die. So if anybody is blowing a 0.3 and they're conscious, um, they are at statistically a high risk of having medical problems as, as a result of their alcohol withdrawal. Um, and so what does alcohol withdrawal look like? First of all, it can start within 12 hours after having a drink and it can go up to really like 72 um, hours is kind of our most dangerous time uh, time zone, but really up to five days even. And the first symptom we call this, it's listed here as autonomic hyperactivity. That just means that their vital signs go up, that they have a high heart rate, they have a high blood pressure, that they're shaky, that they're sweaty, that they're feeling anxious, and they might be kind of agitated. Um, they're, they're, they're not feeling good and they're not looking good. That's the first sign from a medical perspective, that's where we want to start intervening and give them medicines because then we can stop the rest of it. They can have the hand tremor, the shakes. They can have insomnia and insomnia can last a long time. People can actually have little hallucinations. We call it alcoholic hallucinosis when they're in withdrawal. They might see things, bugs on them. They might see textures moving in the wall or they might even hear voices. And again, when I see this, I think scary. I think um, this person's brain is misfiring, and I'm worried that they're going to have a seizure any moment. Um, the psychomotor agitation just means that they're agitated. They're moving around a lot. They can't sit still. Uh, they might be annoying, which is why we want to pay attention to this, because we don't want to neglect them if this is going on. Uh, they can feel anxious, and then again, they can have seizures. These are these whole body seizures. Um, <clears throat> Now again, this is really done after a week at the longest. Um, this whole idea of going up to weeks isn't real. Um, there's this idea of protracted withdrawal and I would say I don't buy it for the most part. It's just physiology. Um, the, the biggest risk is in, the, is in the first 72 hours after not having a drink. Um, but it can go a few days longer than that, especially if somebody has liver problems, they might be 
um, kind of eliminating that alcohol slowly, which means that their withdrawal is going to happen a little bit later. And this scale on the, on the right side of the screen, um, I don't think law enforcement uses it. You don't have to worry about it. It's something we use in a hospital. Is the last one? I think okay. So, so one one thing to talk about uh, with withdrawal is this idea of delirium tremens or the DTS. And what I encourage you to do is forget the the, the tremens part. It's not important at all. It's what's important here is delirium, which means that somebody's brain is misfiring. If, if this is the worst type of withdrawal that you can have, it's the most dangerous because it has very high death rates. So again, if, if somebody came in, maybe they blew 300, uh, 0.3 or 300 or above, um, and they're start, you know, they were getting kind of anxious and agitated, they were getting sweaty, and now all of a sudden they're not making any sense at all. It's like they're psychotic. Or they keep falling asleep and waking up, falling asleep and waking up. But you think that there's only, they've only been using alcohol. You don't think that they've been using heroin or something like that. They can't finish sentences because they're confused. People who are on opiates, they might fall asleep, but they're not confused. If people have been having alcohol and it's been anywhere from, again, 12 to 72 hours, something like that, and now they're getting confused, they need to go to medical, they need to go to the emergency room because delirium tremens will kill them. Very high rates of strokes and heart attacks and seizures. Um, also high rates of actual brain damage that can result from this. Um, so, so they have all this withdrawal and now they're confused. Um, we're also more likely to see this if people have other illnesses, they have uncontrolled diabetes, they've had a heart attack within six weeks, they've had a surgery within six weeks, they have some big infection. This increases their risk of having delirium tremens or delirium in withdrawal. It's a medical emergency. Um, another thing to look out for is if their eyes were working fine before, and now all of a sudden they're kind of wall-eyed. One eye, when they look from side to side, only one eye goes. That is, again, a medical emergency uh, that happens in, uh, in, in alcohol withdrawal, something we call Wernicke-Korsakoff, um, and their brain is literally trying to die in front of you. We've got to get them um, into emergency room as, as quickly as possible. They're going to be confused and not making sense, they might also speak gibberish. So if somebody's been drinking, you think maybe they're in withdrawal, and all of a sudden they're literally like they think they're talking to you and making sense, and it's gibberish, emergency room. Um, the, the language center in their brain is starting to fry, um, and that's just one of the signs that we see. Um, and unfortunately, if we don't respond, that can become permanent um, if they survive it. So that's the most dangerous thing. You know, withdrawal from opiates isn't gonna kill most people. Withdrawal from cocaine doesn't kill anybody. Withdrawal from meth doesn't kill anybody. Um, but withdrawal from alcohol actually can be very lethal. Um, and until we figured out how to treat it aggressively, um, a lot of people died from it. And now way fewer people, we cut the, the death rate at least in half um, by, by using protocols in hospitals. I remember they, it wasn't that long ago that they used to prescribe beer. Yeah. So patients would come in for a surgery. They were known alcoholic. So instead of putting them on, on a protocol and withdrawing them, they would just give them beer, and that would stop the withdrawals. Yeah. Yeah. So it's now kind of faux pas, and we use these we use benzodiazepines instead. 
uh, or these things called barbiturates, like phenobarbital. Um, it, they achieved the same thing. It just became like politically, yeah, incorrect or whatever to give alcohol. Also, alcohol causes other problems. So, so we can really control the dose of, of, a, of a pill or, or an IV thing. Um, uh, so, and this I don't think we need to see. This is just a, a picture of all the different parts of the body that alcohol affects, and it's a ton. This one's interesting because it points out the good things alcohol can do in moderation, which is a bit controversial. Yeah, yeah, what's moderation, right? Um, but, but certainly, I would say the, the, the dangers of alcohol um, far out, outweigh the, the benefits. Um, so uh, like all of our addictions, um, an alcohol use disorder is just that somebody has two or more of these 11 criteria. They're the same criteria for all addictions. Right? They're using more than they intended. Um, they're having difficulty cutting down. Uh, they're, they're spending most of their time kind of using or recovering from use. They're craving alcohol. Um, and I, I run into a lot of patients say, well, I'm not really craving alcohol because I don't need it. Craving is just that you want to drink. That's all. It doesn't have to be physical or emotional or spiritual or anything else. It's just that you want to drink. Um, uh, it's a really big predictor of having a drink. So that's why we call it out. <laughs> so it's pouring a drink. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, the next one is where, you know, alcohol is getting in the way of fulfilling your obligations, right? It's starting to, to impede your functioning. Um, uh, the next one is that your use of alcohol is causing problems with like relationships, right? Um, sometimes I'll ask people, hey, uh, you know, does your drinking cause any problems with your relationships? Nah. And then I ask, anybody not like that you're drinking? Oh yeah, my wife hates it, my mom hates it. That's what we're talking about. It's, it's causing some sort of conflict. Um, the next one is that you're giving up either social, occupational, or recreational activities, right? Either you're going in late to work because you're hungover, or you don't want to go uh, bowling because everybody's going to know that you're drinking again. Um, or you just don't like that you turn into a jerk sometimes, and so you're gonna you're gonna stay away from people while you drink. You're prioritizing drinking over socializing, uh, using it in hazardous situations like driving a car, going on your roof, uh, or or playing with your firearms, um, uh, continuing to use it despite knowing that it's worsening a medical or a psychological problem. It's a funny thing you have to know that uh, by DSM. And then developing tolerance um, and having withdrawal. So you just need two of these in 12 months uh, to have a, a mild alcohol use disorder. Four of these in 12 months and you have a moderate alcohol use disorder. Or six or more and you have a severe um, alcohol use disorder. Um, so what do we do to treat it? All kinds of different treatments. And again, just to be clear, not everybody needs medical treatment for alcohol. Everybody needs it for opiates, but, but not everybody needs it for alcohol. Um, and there are different ways to do it. Some people's goal is I want to stop drinking. And some people's goal is I just want to be able to stop at two drinks. And I try to help people meet whatever their goal is. Um, and so there are different ways. There, there are, are group therapies. Uh, there's counseling or what's called psychotherapy here. Um, and there are medications. And I would say there are others too. So there's group therapies like with therapists. But then there are also what we call mutual help groups, AA, Life Ring, Smart Recovery. These aren't led by professionals. These are just led by the people who, who show up. Um, and you can, it's 
the ones, the 12 step ones are based on 12 steps um, and, and the others are just based on kind of trying to, to work your recovery. And then there are medicines, a couple of different medicines. Uh, uh, disregard all the medicines in the bottom box. Uh, it's all, none of those treat alcohol use disorder. Actually, that's not true. Topiramate does. And I think jury's still out on gabapentin, but all the other ones are silly. Uh, but disulfiram, that's antabuse. That's the one that makes you sick if you drink. Um, it doesn't work in most people because most people stop taking it. They don't want to get sick. Um, but naltrexone is, is the most effective medicine we have. And that one, just when we drink alcohol, it releases endorphins in our brain. And that's part of why it feels good. And naltrexone blocks those endorphins. So it doesn't feel as good. It also reduces our cravings to drink, which again are, are such a good predictor. And there's a pill form of naltrexone that we can take every day, or there's a once a month injection of naltrexone. It's a big injection, uh, but you only need to be compliant once a month. And so some people really prefer that. Um, and then there's this acamprosate. Uh, acamprosate is a three times a day medicine. Uh, that's a big bummer about it. The other bummer is that the dose for whatever reason is 666 milligrams. <laughs> and some people are freaked out by that number. Um, when they are, I explain to them that it's actually two 333 milligram pills. Um, and that's a real good number. Uh, and then topiramate or Topamax, uh, it actually has uh, equal um, evidence to a acamprosate, uh, at least in this country. Um, and then gabapentin, again, it's People are finding some evidence for it, um, but I'm wary of any medicine that people think treats everything, and that's kind of where gabapentin is these days. So. <laughs> but all these other ones are, are, are SSRIs do not treat alcohol use disorder. Baclofen fails on Dancitron, fails unless you have five people in your study. Right. So that's those are those slides. Any th